The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by two guests, Karen Matson and Greg Patterson. Karen is the team lead with the Mental Health Capacity Building Initiative at Alberta Health Services, and Greg Patterson is also with Alberta Health Services, and he is a health promotion facilitator with the Provincial Addiction Prevention Team. And today, we are going to talk about alcohol use from a school health perspective. Welcome to both of you, Karen and Greg. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We like to start off by asking our guests what their strategies are for taking care of their well-being. It's fun to get to know people that way. And it's also a good reminder to those of you who are listening that this may be an opportunity for you to pursue your own well-being and whatever might satisfy what you need to do today. So, Karen, why don't we start with you? What are your go-to strategies for taking care of your own health and well-being? Sure. Well, um, I am a fur mom to three rabbits, a cat, a dog, and a turtle. So I spend a lot of my time with them, um, holding my rabbit all the time. It's very soothing to pet the animals. And the dog we got, we actually found her on a highway. So we have an accidental dog. And so that has caused my partner and I to spend a lot more time out in nature in the parks around Edmonton. And we've discovered some absolutely beautiful ones in the river valley where you feel like you're not even in the city. So being being out in nature is definitely something that helps my mental well-being. And I mean, not that it's great to sit in front of screens all day, but I do like watching funny TV shows or uplifting TV shows. One of my favorites being things like Ted Lasso or RuPaul's Drag Race, just feel good, funny things. And I find that that helps me sort of unwind and, you know, escape from the drama of the world sometimes. Absolutely. I'm a Ted Lasso fan as well. Greg, how about you? What works for you? Well, I'm the fortunate father of three fun and wonderful children. So a lot of my time is devoted to uh, being a father, but getting in there and playing with them and teaching them wonderful things. And yeah, I find that to be a great outlet for myself. Still important to have my own adult time, my Greg time, as I call it. So <laughs> I kind of fill that with things that I enjoy and uh, pursue, such as uh, mountain biking. I enjoy running and do yoga in the winter, cross-country skiing and such. So activities like that where... Uh, not only is it fun, but I'm also getting exercise while I do it. And yeah, I have a wonderful dog that keeps me busy through the work days as I work from home. And yeah, when time allows, uh, tucking into a good book, which isn't too often, but uh, when I can do it, I sure enjoy it. Oh, thanks for sharing all the various strategies that help you to feel at your best. I think it's helpful to be reminded of the different ways that we can support our well-being. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how your roles relate to the topic today about how to address alcohol use and talk about alcohol in the school setting? Sure. So my academic background actually lies in the fields of education and psychology. I worked a number of years as an educator in both primary and secondary settings. And I guess more recently in addiction services as both a clinical counselor and uh, I've held numerous prevention capacities as well. So a large part of my team's current role is ensuring that our Alberta Health Services colleagues and the greater population of Alberta have good access to the most current and evidence-based information on alcohol. And this is to empower them in making informed decisions on its use in efforts to mitigate any related risks and harms. So 
that's where this uh, it gels really nicely with today's opportunity to uh, be speaking with you. That's great that you have the teaching experience and the mental health support experience to bring together to this topic. I think that's super helpful. How about you, Karen? Yeah, so as you'd said, I work for the Mental Health Capacity Building in Schools Initiative. So it's a mental health promotion and prevention program. We have 42 programs across the province that use schools as hubs to provide programming that increases the social emotional learning skills of children and youth. Um, we work to decrease stigma related to mental health, as well as increase uh, the mental health literacy in adults who work closely with children and youth. My first degree was in kinesiology, um, and my master's is in public health with a specialization in health promotion. And prior to my position here with MHCB, I worked with the Alberta Healthy School Wellness Fund, which was a granting body that awarded large and small grants to schools and school districts for projects mostly related to healthy eating and active living, although we did some related to mental wellness as well. So while I don't do the programming myself, I support our programs in delivering effective evidence-based health promotion programming. And I have been lucky enough to spend some time in the classrooms firsthand to see the work being done. And I have access to an absolute wealth of knowledge through our 42 PMs. And I sure did use the phone a friend option um, in preparation (laughs) for this podcast because they are the experts more so than me. So I'm passing their knowledge along as well. Awesome. I love that you both highlighted the importance of evidence-based strategies because there is actually a pretty long history of well-meaning intentions in terms of drug and alcohol education in the school setting that actually aren't based on evidence or research. So I think that is such an important place to start. Can you speak to us a bit about the prevalence of alcohol use for adolescents right now? Do you have information about that just to set the context? Yeah, absolutely. This one sort of ties into the old adage of uh, everyone's doing it. It just isn't true. That's that's flat out misinformation. So it's true that alcohol does remain the drug with the highest prevalence of use by Canadian students, uh, say in grades 7 through to 12. The most recent study that would reflect that is 2019, where 39% of Alberta respondents, they had been drinking alcohol in the past year, the past 12 months. Further to that, one in every five Alberta students, roughly around 20% in the survey, they indicated binge drinking. That would be classified for if you're female, four drinks or more in one setting, and then uh, if you're male, five drinks or more. However, to go on the opposite end of that, a piece of good news for youth health is that, well, 61% of grades 7 to 12 students, they did not drink alcohol in the past 12 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it really is important to not fall into that trap of thinking that everyone's doing it and you need to do it to fit in. It's just not true. And discussing reasons why people may choose to drink. At the adolescence phase of life, there can be a number of reasons. It can be simply out of curiosity. It can be maybe out of rebelling against uh, some authoritarian figure. It can be maybe peer group based, a little pressure coming from their, uh, their social circles. And, and a lot of times, it can also be just inability to cope with emotions, problems that are going on in life, things like that. So they lack coping skills, and sometimes they turn to alcohol just as a numbing, an easier way out to deal with problems that they can't seem to resolve. Alcohol use uh, among youth, it does vary. So many young people, they don't drink alcohol at all, and some may drink just occasionally without any long-term issues, while others may develop problematic use and go on to experiencing longer-term harms. Such a good point that there can be degrees of use, some problematic and some that aren't. What are the impacts of alcohol, specifically as they relate to children and youth, and what potential harms can be involved with alcohol use? 
Well, although alcohol is widely considered to be socially acceptable, drinking any amount of alcohol, it does come with considerable risk for young people because their bodies and their brains just aren't fully developed yet. Drinking alcohol during adolescence, it can have negative impacts on how the brain develops, a process that really isn't complete until around the age of 25, we now understand. So the piece with alcohol and adolescent use is the earlier a person begins drinking alcohol, well, the greater the risk of having mental and physical health concerns, which in turn raises their risk of developing chronic illness and mental health conditions later on in life. Alcohol consumption also poses serious risks to young persons' health and safety, especially if they're engaging in high-risk drinking behaviors, such as binge drinking. So this type of use, it increases the likelihood of a youth engaging in risk-taking behavior, for example, like driving after drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it also raises the bar as well of risk for them experiencing other negative consequences, such as injuries, maybe unsafe sexual activity, violence, or even becoming over-intoxicated with alcohol poisoning. It's important within this context to understand exactly what alcohol is. Alcohol is also known as ethanol, which is a psychoactive substance found in beverages such as beer, wine, and spirits. And how it's produced is by fermenting or distilling grain, fruit, or vegetables. And although the ingredients, taste, appearance, and alcohol content of alcohol products, they really vary widely, their effects are all the same on the body. Alcohol is what we call a depressant and it acts on the central nervous system. So this means that it affects how the brain functions and it communicates with the rest of the body. These processes are slowed down as a result of the neurotransmitter GABA that's released during alcohol consumption. So with that slowing down the brain-to-brain -brain communication and brain-to-body communication, it can impact everything from your breathing to your heart rate to the way you feel, think, and behave. People often describe feeling relaxed, euphoric and less inhibited during the earlier stages of alcohol intoxication. And the effects of moderate intoxication can range from impaired attention to slowed reflexes or coordination to double or blurred vision to unsteady or staggering walk. With severe intoxication, people may experience vomiting or the inability to stand, loss of consciousness, or even death in the worst case scenario. A person's uh, blood alcohol concentration increases with the amount of alcohol consumed in any given period of time. So the more alcohol in the blood, the greater the intensity of its effects on the body. How alcohol affects someone varies from person to person and with each use. So the effects that alcohol has depends on several factors, and I'll just list off a few here right now. Mm -hmm. First off is age, and second is the uh, sex assigned at birth, whether you're male or female. Body weight is a factor and the amount of food consumed before drinking and during drinking alcohol, and also the rate at which you consume alcohol, whether you're drinking it fast or pacing yourself nice and slow, and the amount or the strength of alcohol consumed as well, whether other substances have been consumed alongside with the alcohol, for example, like cannabis, and lastly, how often or how much you drink, and that sort of determines uh, your tolerance and the effect that alcohol will have on you. Just because uh, someone appears to be okay, well, it doesn't mean that they are. You know, there's a number of people that can even be under the influence, and you would never know. Again, back to their tolerance, they may hide it very well. Right. What role can schools play in the prevention of problematic alcohol use? Are there things in terms of policy or other activities or specific prevention programs? You've talked about the evidence, like what actually is 
within the realm of what schools can do to influence this? Well, as for the role that schools play, it's it's about a culture of expectation because a lot of students will come to schools and classrooms with unhealthy coping skills or maladaptive home environments. That's what they see. That's what they know. Um, so you have to be intentional about school culture and environment, like helping students to recognize the connection between stress they manage and how they cope. So to make sure that they see that link between coping skills and the use of alcohol. When you drink, your world becomes smaller and you can kind of numb out those stressors and that kind of a thing. So just recognizing if there is a link between them choosing to drink and any kind of stress that they're going through and how they might be using alcohol as a coping mechanism. And again, priorities that schools have related to social, emotional learning and wellness. Do they make time to practice coping skills and self-reflect on things? It's one thing to, you know, teach kids about belly breathing and whatnot, but actually integrating that into their day is what makes the difference in the long run. Because it's all part of the same puzzle. Like, don't drink, but what do you want them to do? What should they do instead? Providing extracurricular activities, I think you kind of mentioned that as well, that is important, especially out in rural and remote areas. Um, speaking to some of our project managers, they mentioned that in those smaller communities, if you don't play a sport, there really isn't a lot of other options mm -hmm. to do. So even being creative with some after-school clubs, um, finding a way to foster a sense of belonging for those students that might not fit the mold. Talking to students, again, what their interests are and facilitating some of that stuff. Like, I've heard of Dungeons and Dragons after-school clubs. Fun. And in terms of an evidence-based one, there's actually this Lego club that a lot of our um, programs do that helps with communication skills. So there's like a builder, someone that sources the correct piece, and somebody that puts them together. People obviously, you know, are going to get in arguments. That fits there. That doesn't fit there. And so they, they practice using some of their communication skills and conflict resolution skills. And it's also a way to keep them active after school and have somewhere to be and make some friends that way. And so when students are struggling, people tend to kind of want to shove them to somebody else. Yeah. And the truth is what they need are adults in their lives that care about them. And they might not always have that at home. So teachers are the ones that often have those close relationships with students. And that connection is integral in the support of students. Students don't always want outsiders speaking to them. I mean, in some cases, it's good to have someone that's considered an expert come in and talk to them about things. But they also really value someone that they trust. And teachers are someone that they trust, especially when you're starting to talk more about than just the facts, you know, talking about like, how do you cope? What's going on with you? You know, that kind of thing. You need a trusting relationship. So as a teacher, you cannot overrate the importance of your relationship and connections with students. As an example, um, when I was in high school, we had a basketball coach, uh, Miss Porter, and I was in grade 10. I'd never experienced any loss in my life up until that point. And then in the space of three months, um, I lost my dog of 15 years. I lost my grandma and my mm -hmm. uncle, who actually turned out to be a severe alcoholic, even experienced homelessness, um, died as a result of it. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot to take on, you know, when you're 15 or 16. Yeah. So I was obviously, you know, a little bit off and my, my basketball coach, because she knows me, could see that I was struggling a little bit. So something as simple as we were running a drill and I just couldn't, like, I couldn't track, I couldn't keep up, like I just wasn't myself. And she pulled me off to the side and just had me practice jump shots because something repetitive, you know, it's almost meditative doing those sorts of things. And, and she said to me at the time, she's like, when I'm stressed out, doing stuff like this actually helps me, like physical activity helps and that repetitiveness can help. Plus, I mean, I need to work on my jump shot anyway. So, <laughs> 
so things like that. And then afterwards, um, she pulled me into her little office area and said, you know what, if you're struggling in class, if you're not feeling well, you just leave, tell them Miss Porter said you can leave. And she's like, you can come here. If you want to talk, we can. Otherwise, like, and if you need just to get out of here, you can go. Mm-hmm. But just having somebody there that, you know, was there for me, saw me as a person and was there to support me, it really did help me through to really help me cope. So these are things that matter to students and you might not always know it in the moment, but it makes a, a big difference to students growing up. Yeah, that's something that's come up over and over on the podcast is just the role that relationships with teachers can play in a student's life. We don't always know which students maybe are needing our attention or support, but I think your story really highlights how teachers can play that role sometimes just when a student needs it. And this may or may not be helpful in terms of connecting with students. Something that I have heard, and this only really works in the rural, smaller schools, but teaching staff actually have almost like playing cards of the students in the school. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, and they're all assigned some. And their job is to go and, and make a connection with these students, you know, not just, hey, how was your weekend? It's, how was that, you know, 4-H club or, you know, just something so that they feel a connection in that way. And not every time you're going to have a teacher that can make a connection with a certain student. So they would actually like trade cards. Like, I'm having trouble reaching this kid. Can you maybe go and see if you can kind of get a connection going with them? So I thought that was really neat. Yeah, I have heard of some schools that do kind of like a a big meeting where they go through school lists and make sure that at least one teacher in the building feels like they have a pretty good connection with that student. Because sometimes it's from like grades past that that teacher will still see them and talk with them. But I think that goal of, you know, every student has at least one adult who's like rooting for them and wanting to connect with them on maybe a more individual basis is powerful. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated also how all of the strategies you talked about were more upstream, proactive and preventative things, talking about social emotional learning and improving communication skills and not those sort of emergent scare tactic kind of responses that have been done in terms of alcohol use in the school setting. So I think that's really compelling as I listen to you. Yeah, thank you. Like, absolutely. That's why I love health promotion. Like the example that we always use is if you're standing in front of a river and there are people drowning in front of you, it is absolutely important. You got to get them out of there. You have to save them. That's an important thing, quite obviously. But in my life and throughout my career, I've found that what I want to do is walk further up the stream and figure out why are these people falling in the river to see if we can stop them from falling in the river. And some are going to fall no matter what you do, but you can teach them to swim a little bit better. So by the time they get down, you know, downstream, they're managing to cope a little bit better. So that's kind of the analogy that we use. Yeah. So we know that prohibition isn't always the best route to curb problematic alcohol use. And in some cases in high school, our students might be of legal drinking age. What does the research say about promising practices for prevention of problematic alcohol use in youth? The best prevention measures often, they have nothing to do with the substance at all. And even just speaking back to uh, when my role was more clinically based, working with individuals who were already having problems with alcohol, we wouldn't spend our hour-long sessions just talking about alcohol. Mm -hmm. We would spend our sessions getting to know the individual better and basically their relationship with alcohol. So what was it that provoked them to reach out to alcohol and uh, form a pattern of alcohol use? So it's similar with prevention. Efforts to improve youth overall health and well-being and reduce social and health inequities can go a long way in minimizing youth's risk of substance-related harms. 
a key part of this is active, meaningful engagement with various school community members, including teachers, as we've already spoken about, school administrators, families involved with school, school health nurses, counselors, and other staff. And more importantly, though, is the youth themselves having those relationships amongst their peer groups. Many traditional approaches to addressing youth substance, for example, like zero tolerance policies and abstinence-only education, they really have limited effectiveness and can produce unintended negative consequences. Can I just ask, what are some of those harms that can happen when we take an abstinence-only approach? So the biggest piece is, is misunderstanding as to the not sharing of knowledge as to what that decision was based off of. And that's that's where like a big shift in uh, Canada's low-risk drinking guidelines, what they learned over the years, and the research was there, that, uh, well, people don't really want to be told what to do, what they shouldn't be doing. It's better to provide them with the best evidence-based uh, information and allow them to make informed decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. When you have those zero tolerance approaches, I feel like as a student or as an adult, you kind of just shut them down. So you don't hear anything after that message because that's it's really not a reasonable thing to say, you know. Um, there are some students that are going to choose not to drink. But, you know, if you're trying to give health advice to someone and the answer is just never, ever do it, you know, you don't hear what's being said after that. And it, it really isn't reasonable. So um, I think there's a danger there in just losing your audience completely. Yeah. Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And without providing people with a context and reasoning as to why you shouldn't be doing it, just saying, well, we don't tolerate any alcohol use here. Well, there needs to be an understanding with that as to why and what the problematic associations with that are. And then people can, they can better make well-informed decisions on why they shouldn't be using it if that's a a standard for wherever they are. Positive fact-based messages can be more effective than scare or threat-based tactics and graphic images. It's just proven that fear-based messaging could even be counterproductive. Um, Even if you're old enough, you remember that one commercial of the uh, scolding hot cast iron pan, and they throw the butter in and say, well, this is drugs. And then they throw the egg in there and say, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And I mean, it's it's memorable, no question, but does it really have an impact on people's decisions around drug and alcohol use? And uh, the science is out there saying no. There needs to be more than that. We should maybe talk about those federal guidelines. Do you want to just share briefly what changed in the recent guidelines? We refer to it now as Canada's Guideline on Alcohol and Health. It replaced the Canada's Low Risk Drinking Guidelines that were uh, published in 2012. In regards to youth, basically, the guidelines, they're not really applicable to youth. Basically, they're intended for people of legal drinking age and older. And advice going forward for youth is delaying alcohol use as long as possible. And that's what we already spoke to is, uh, well, adolescent bodies and brains are still developing in regard to the brain all the way up to the age of 25. So even beyond the legal age, the less you use, the better off you will be. But as far as the big changes go, basically, the new guidance is the more alcohol you drink per week, the higher your risk of health problems. And they really shoot at aiming to drink less, no matter what your current pattern of alcohol use. And it's heavily associated with physical health, diseases that are uh, correlated with alcohol use from heart disease all the way up to uh, seven known cancers that alcohol is a cause of as a class one carcinogenic. I like how 
they had, you know, like yellow, if you have X amount of drinks, these are some of the risks that are associated and they're less than if you drink this many drinks, which is moderate and they're bigger um, amount of consequences up to red kind of. So like you'd said, Greg, presenting people with the information instead of just saying no, it's like, here's what your risks are. And, you know, again, help you with your decision making process. And the why. Well, yeah, and it is a big change from the uh, the previous uh, low risk drinking guidelines as the new guidelines are saying one to two drinks per week, you're at low risk, not no risk, but low risk. And then it sort of builds up from there. Another piece that was new is you know how for a while there, like the media picked it up, a glass of wine, red wine, can actually have health benefits. Isn't that correct, Greg? They pulled all of that back. Yes, that's all been uh, undone and proven incorrect. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting and good to have the most current information. So students may see alcohol in their home context, whether it's their parents using alcohol to celebrate or maybe problematic use. When it comes to, you know, really any substance use question, but how can teachers take a trauma-informed approach to these conversations? So in relation to trauma, there are five principles of trauma-informed care. Trauma awareness and acknowledgement, so acknowledging that's happening, safety and trustworthiness, which ties into what we were saying about having that relationship with people, choice, control and collaboration, which again tied into what Greg was talking about when you present people with information and let them have choice and be part of that conversation rather than telling them thou shalt do this or that. Um, taking a strength-based and skill-building approach, and then cultural, historical, and gender issues. So again, number one is that you have to be in a relationship with students to be trauma-informed. That's why um, our MHCB staff, they require there to be school staff present in the classroom when they're doing programming, because our staff don't always know what has happened to these students. Of course. Uh, so it's not trauma-informed unless you have a relationship with them. So you need to recognize everyone brings a different experience and they need understanding and to see a different way of being as opposed to alcoholism or problem drinking that they may be accustomed to. That idea of mentoring or just being a role model, you know, they're watching you. These students are watching you and you might be the only healthy adult that they have to emulate. So it's really important that you you know, take care of yourself and, and show them other ways of being. Oh, those five principles for trauma-informed care are helpful. And it does need to be kind of always in the background that that is a possibility that we need to attend to. Mm-hmm. Alcohol in particular is complicated because it's legal for kids that are over the age of 18. Just so much alcohol-related messages in the media. So there's just a lot of maybe conflicting and competing messages about alcohol in our social context. Given all of those factors, how can teachers foster those critical decision-making skills within youth and support that nuanced understanding about alcohol that reflects the complexities of the world that we live in? Well, that's quite true. Absolutely. Um, As we grow up, we're exposed to numerous different environments where we hear a lot about alcohol, whether it's on television, social media, school settings, home settings. And quite often we can hear adults boasting about some of their underage drinking fun that they had with a a memory filter is what I call it, that seems to leave out the trade-offs. Not only that, when things go wrong with alcohol use, we don't always share the facts. So the harms that are related to that are are often hidden or muted. As an adult, it's important to support youth in honestly reflecting on the current and very possible effects that alcohol can result if they choose to consume. A range of interacting risk and protective factors in a young person's life either place them at a greater risk of problematic substance use, or in turn, they can protect them from this risk. So 
It's worth mentioning that some risk factors may be more powerful than others at certain stages of development, such as peer pressure, for example, during teenage years. Equally, some protective factors, such as strong, healthy relationships with uh, parents, well, they can have greater impact on reducing risks during the earlier years. So this can influence many health and socioeconomic outcomes in childhood and later in life. And an important goal of prevention is to shift the balance in favor of protective factors over risk factors. One example is uh, one protective factor many are familiar with is development of resilience. We've heard a lot about this. Uh, there's been a lot, of, a lot of research on this in the past decade or so. And basically what resilience is, it's the ability to cope with life's changes in a healthy way. And resilience skills such as managing stress or regulating our emotions, they can be learned and built on throughout our lives. So the younger we start building resilience, the better. Yeah. Key way to build resilience is through positive interactions and supportive relationships with trusted adults. And as mentors and trusted sources of information, educators are uniquely positioned to help young people develop resilience. There's a few ways of, uh, that they can incorporate this into their practice of teaching. So educating youth about social and emotional skills such as healthy relationships, boundaries, and safe expression of sexuality is a good one. And also connecting youth with caring adults through mentoring and after-school programs. And reducing the stigma around seeking help for substance use, mental health, and uh, family and relationship challenges. And that's a big one. I mean, they have made a lot of progress and improvements with that over the years, where it's a, a bit more normal to go speak with a counselor at school. With, and lastly, intervening when you suspect youth are at risk of immediate or long-term harm. Can I ask, what should teachers be looking for as signs that maybe there is a student that needs that intervention or support? Um, it could be a number of things. I guess uh, the, the first and foremost would be just change in behavior. There's a combination of several of the signs that are serve as a good indication that something may be wrong. How rested one appears in the day. There might be changes in sleeping and eating patterns. So they might be struggling with insomnia or maybe you even catch them napping at inappropriate times during the uh, day. As well, sudden increase or decrease with appetite. And again, back to physical appearance. Maybe the eyes look different, red or watery, dilated pupils. Um, maybe the nose is running or something like that, coughing, headaches. And one way people sometimes hide up substance use is the use of strong cologne. I know Axe really kind of took over when it was released decades ago, and <laughs> that's all you smelt in schools. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Fragrances and colognes, mouthwash, eye drops, those can be uh, indicators of people masking or hiding problematic use. And as well, the big piece is changes in emotions and behavior, maybe the increase in moodiness or the depression, or maybe more irritation or hostility, lying, secretive, things like that. And difficulty following instructions or concentrating, possibly avoiding eye contact with you. The list really goes on as far as to what sort of signs that there may be a problem involving possibly alcohol or drugs. And just to add to something there, Part of uh, an MHCB, we work with children and youth and do the programming with them, but also with adults that work with children and youth. And there are things available like mental health first aid or mental health literacy courses. And part of what that does is help teachers understand mental wellness, mental health, those sorts of things, what that looks like. And it actually can help them in identifying students that are struggling earlier. So, I mean, that's something that is available in a lot of districts or something that maybe these teachers can look and ask for is to do that kind of programming to help 
build their own skills and being able to help students and recognize when they're struggling. You can do them through AHS as well. So Wonderful. Are there any particular tools or promising practices that you would want teachers to know about in terms of preventing harmful alcohol use? Yeah, and Greg, you had mentioned resilience and building resilience in students, which is one of the best ways, obviously, to help them cope and avoid some of these substance use issues. Growth mindset is another kind of term that they use these days um, for a lot of the programming with children and youth. Again, there are programs and things available. There's mental health literacy programs that for junior high right now, they're 7 to 12. Again, that's an AHS program um, that teachers can look at and run in their health classes. Um, A lot of these types of programs are really well geared to calm classes or health classes, like I said. Andrew Baxter uh, with AHS is actually the one that created those programs. And right now they're piloting one for elementary. Yeah, I I was actually traveling yesterday in Vegreville and watched one of the classes talking to these elementary school students um, about mental health and stuff and, and increasing resilience and whatnot. And when we were up in Grand Prairie, we watched a class and, and it was really interesting because they it was the last class of this series, so we didn't get to see all of it, but they touched briefly on the fact that they went through healthy relationships, different coping tools kids can use skills like active listening, empathy, like the importance of their physical and mental health. And these were fifth graders and they had a self-care planning activity that they did. And part of it, you know, again, it's relationships and and having those people they can trust. So they made a list of people they can trust, um, how they can be a good friend, how they can keep themselves clean and tidy was one of them, exercises they can do for their body, or they made lists of things that make them happy or 10 things they can do to help cheer themselves up. So even though, again, there's not that direct link that you see right off the bat to maybe drinking alcohol, those are kind of tools and skills that you can teach kids, you know, that you can actually do in the classroom setting that that do address these things, even though they might not appear at first blush that they do. Right. Those sound great. And we will include links to those programs as well. And I think beyond the tools that have been mentioned, one of the things that we've already talked about is that uh, I think educators and teachers, they really are in a wonderful position in the relationships that they're able to forge with these students. And with that, it's just strongly encouraged to foster open and honest relationships. And that's where when we breach the topic of alcohol, well, it doesn't have to be uh, taboo or uncomfortable. And one thing that's uh, definitely proven is that having several conversations over a long period of time, as opposed to a a one-off conversation, is far more effective and far more impactful. And I guess with that, like when you have these conversations, just being honest, giving them the facts, like telling them, well, delay your drinking for as long as possible. And that's going to lower any risks you may experience uh, right off or, or down the road as you're still developing your brain. And telling them to, you know, avoid mixing alcohol with other substances, stay clear of the higher concentrated alcohol drinks if they are going to drink, and also like have them set limits with their drinking, teach them what a standard drink size is. And if they are going to choose to use alcohol, that will set a limit when you go out and be responsible. Even just keeping track of how much they're drinking and that kind of a thing. Like the solo cups, took me a hot minute to figure out that that bottom little line there is how much, you know, one hard alcohol drink is. And then there's a middle line that's for wine. And then the top of it is like beer in terms of um, a serving. So, I mean, yeah, you'd, you'd pour a drink or you think you pour a drink and you've actually poured four. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, be with a peer group that's going to look out for you. Make sure you're eating food when you consume alcohol. And for one alcoholic drink you have, well, you should counter that with a non-alcoholic drink, something as simple as water. 
And all these little pieces that can be had in a conversation with a teacher, it'd be far more meaningful than uh, having someone come in and uh, say that to them that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Because they might not feel comfortable asking these questions of their parents, mm-hmm. um, but talking to a teacher and getting the information to make the decisions yes. makes a lot of sense. That relates kind of to the next question, which is what advice would you give for teachers about checking in on their own understanding and values related to alcohol prior to entering into those conversations with students? They may be coming from a certain frame of reference in terms of alcohol use. How do we make sure that we're giving students information and maybe not passing along unfair values or judgments at the same time that we may not realize are flavoring how we're talking about it? Yeah, of course. When we have these conversations, we always want to check our bias and our our personal agendas uh, at the door and basically just be delivering the facts. We need to be thinking critically on how we talk about alcohol with younger adults and adolescents. It's so easy in the the culture that we live in. Alcohol is just such a big part of it. So it's easy to joke and say, oh, I need a a wine after that meeting or uh, I, I sure need a beer after that long day of work. And the association that alcohol is with so many lived experiences, like sporting events and such, it's really hard to get away from it. But if you're thinking of talking to youth about alcohol, it can be hard to know where to start. First off, you might be unsure about the subject and you might worry that raising the topic of alcohol, it might have a counter effect and encourage experimentation. But my recommendation would be increasing your knowledge on alcohol prior to speaking with youth. That's the first and foremost thing. I mean, there's numerous credible websites that you can do this through. And Canada's Guidance on Alcohol and Health, the final report, is available on the CCSA website. And it's a great starting point. There's so much wonderful information on there. And then being open and inviting to conversations about alcohol, it can help give children and teens the support and guidance that they need to make these healthy, well-informed decisions. And that's what the guidance is all about. Yeah, I think that's helpful. So, yeah, something I would want to just add is around race, class-based assumptions with things like drinking. Some populations or communities um, can be at higher risk of alcohol use, but you do want to examine sometimes those assumptions. Just because somebody, you know, is rich or appears to have like a good family on the outside, that doesn't mean that there isn't substance use going on behind closed doors. So, thinking that one group is more immune than the other um, is something you need to think about. That's why we always talk about um, universal programming, because it's good to notice the kids that are struggling. And we call those targeted groups, you know, maybe pulling in a certain group of students to give them some programming that's very relevant to what they're going through. That's usually based on things like risk factors is how you select those kids. But we try to, as much as possible, give programming to entire classrooms, to entire schools, because it's messaging that is important for everyone. Like I had a friend in school and we were like Betty and Veronica. I think she got um, expelled from every school in the greater St. Albert area. And I'm the straight A student, you know, captain of the basketball team girl. But she would get picked for these like help sessions almost after school, like not with a counselor, it was with someone else. But she would tell me afterwards about some of the stuff they were learning. And I'd be sitting there being like, geez, I wish I could learn that. You know, like it's stuff that's important to everybody. Like that would have been helpful for me because they didn't see that I was struggling behind the scenes because I showed up to school and, you know, like looked okay from the outside, right? You don't always see um, what's going on behind closed doors for people and who's struggling. So I think it's important to make sure that you're giving these messages to everybody. Okay, so if we thought about our values and our assumptions, what do we say? How do we bring up this topic in the first place? Do you have ideas for that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, providing students with the opportunities to learn about alcohol so they feel empowered to make informed and responsible decisions, it's really important. Current literature supports that approaching this topic with youth in a way that's obviously non-judgmental and always focus on the facts is best. Be ready that some youth, they might be a little hesitant or uncomfortable to talk about alcohol, but that's where just being genuine and honest about it is really going to help ease some of that apprehension and make it a more comfortable experience. Just some tips that may be helpful in generating a conversation with students around this is obviously choosing the right time to talk or a situation where you're both calm and there is time available. You're not going to have to run off because the bell's going to ring in five minutes or anything like that. And also creating a safe, judgment-free space where uh, youth, they feel accepted and valued and respected, you know, hearing them, listening to them, and using language that encourages openness and trust and understanding. And this is an approach that feels more like a two-way conversation, not an interview. Um, this is a conversation with them, remaining calm and listening as well as talking, paying attention to not only what they're saying, but their nonverbal language can be very helpful, yeah. and praising your student as well, expressing gratitude for what they're sharing, whether it's uh, the honesty or openness or stories that they may be able to tell you about their experience with alcohol already, again, being non-judgmental. And always remembering to just focus on the facts. We don't want to bring our personal agenda into this. When we're sharing information about alcohol, yeah, we just want to be evidence-based and fact-based. And when having those conversations, also yeah, reviewing the risks of drinking and the ways in which youth can lower their risks, that should be uh, discussed as well, should they still choose to consume alcohol. Try not to make this a one-time conversation. Um, certainly talking regularly, having several conversations over a lengthier period of time as opposed to just a, a one sit down, it's far more impactful in a positive way for these students. And another thing to keep in mind is that students talk to students more than they talk to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And again, peers know more about what's going on in their lives than, you know, adults ever will. So it's also important to give students the tools to support one another. So some of those discussions, you know, whether it's about the facts of alcohol, but also healthy boundaries um, or how to support their peers related to just general mental health. There are websites like jack.org or Community Helpers is another program. And it's actually a suicide prevention program. But again, everything that we talk about boils back down to those same things. Um, the description, even though it's a suicide prevention program, is learning a variety of topics and skills, including effective communication, self-care, coping with stress, etc. And so um, these are programs that actually use students and get some of them brushed up on those. And so they're kind of a safe person to come to from a peer perspective instead of just an adult one. Because some kids don't find adults to be safe, period, no matter how much good of a teacher you are. I mean, some with their, their background or their history, adults are just not safe to them. And interestingly, one of our programs had surveyed high school students and the topic of interest that came up the most in terms of what they wanted to learn was how do I support my friends that are having problems? Hmm. Because some students just have no idea what to do. So yeah, helping them help each other, I guess, is another way to have some of those good conversations happen, even if we're not there. Yeah, that's powerful to think about how the conversation that you're having with a student might impact the conversations that they have with their peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a good point. While there's a place for skills and strategies with students that they can learn like refusal skills, I just wanted to kind of caution against leading teachers down a path as though there's kind of a catchphrase that you can use to equip students that can be used to say no in the face of drugs or alcohol. 
Like I remember when that happened to us when we were little, it was very cringy to listen to, you know, like, cause that's not how conversations go in real life, you know, or at that age. And so it can be helpful and maybe more so with younger students, but it feels forced and irrelevant. Recognize they're the experts in their own lives, get a new understanding of what it is that they're navigating because it's a lot different than, you know, it was when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. So have a discussion with them. Don't talk at them. Use phrasing more like, what would students at your age do? Not what would you do? Um, Get them to verbalize it. Because students are smart. Like give them info and let them know what will happen if they don't make good choices. Um, Again, let them know those new guidelines. Least harm is least alcohol. But recognize this is probably one of the first times they're actually going to think about how it affects their brain, body, and behavior. Um, And especially with older students, there's issues that you need to breach around, you know, things like consent can come up or staying close to friends, taking care of one another. Strategies like leave no one behind, look out for each other. I know I had a group of friends, there was 10 of us, anytime we'd go anywhere, you know, when we were old enough to go to the bars, 10 of us came together and 10 of us left together, always. And I remember being very shocked, I guess, when I went out to a bar with some girls that I played baseball with that I didn't grow up with. And we couldn't find one of our friends and we did a lap around the bar, couldn't find her. So we got back to the door and they're like, okay, well, let's call a cab. And I was like, pardon? <laughs> they're like, well, we, we called her, you know, I don't know. She's not answering. I don't know. She'll, she'll find her way back. And I was like, what? Like, you can't leave someone alone, like someone that's been drinking by themselves. So I mean, some of those, those expectations too, that they can do to kind of protect themselves, things that are practical. Yeah. Oh, I think those are good strategies to help them. So what is the key advice that you would really want teachers to come away with from this discussion? I would say don't stick to a script and don't provide your students with a script. They need to be given more credit for what they actually know and what they're capable of. And and that's where the whole philosophy of just empowering them with proper evidence-based information and knowledge so they can make the decisions that are necessary. Yes, legal drinking age in Alberta is 18, but we know that uh, youth and adolescents, a number of them will be drinking before that age. And so that's where I think we have a responsibility of giving them as much information as possible so they can do so responsibly. And yeah, at the end of the day, that's through open and honest conversations. Well said. Karen, what advice would you give? The advice I would give, I think, is a lot more general. And I think that this is very important for teachers, particularly um, in the helping profession, is put your oxygen mask on first. The discipline of wellness for an educator is almost a professional obligation. You have to take care of yourself, number one. So do you know what I mean by oxygen mask first? It's like when you're on a plane and they're like, in the unlikely event of cabin depressurization, a mask will drop in front of you. Please affix your own mask before helping others. Because Have you been an attendant? Because you got that down pat. <laughs> I know I even got the attendant voice there. Hey, <laughs> you I was actually pointing to imaginary exits as we were doing that. Um, I felt like I was on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's very important. You can't help somebody else if you're not looking after yourself. And if you want to be a role model for these kids, like you're a number one. And so that can sound selfish or feel selfish, but it's really not. I read something the other day that kind of hit home with me when it comes to that self-care aspect is instead of saying I'm too busy or I don't have time to say exercise, Try saying it's not a priority Hmm. and see how that feels instead. So like, I'm too busy to practice self-care. It's not a priority for me to practice self-care. Yeah, that's harder to do. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a lot harder. And I mean, and it's a fact though, right? I mean, we make time for what's important to us. And unfortunately, we don't put ourselves first enough. And if you need to frame it in a way that, because again, teachers are selfless people, they're in the caring profession, you know, they're there to support students. You can only do a good job of supporting students if you do a good job of taking care of yourself. So that's the advice that I would give to teachers across the board, new or veteran. Well, yes, that's excellent advice and kind of relates to the next question. What about the adults in the building? Are there things that we can do to support our colleagues who may be in recovery from either problematic alcohol or other substance use? How can we, you know, look out for each other and also maybe recognize in ourselves if we need to reevaluate our use of alcohol? What are your thoughts on that? I think first off, if you suspect that a a colleague is using alcohol problematically or you see a pattern of change in their behavior that concerns you, just talk to them. Tell them that you're concerned and explain why. Say that you've noticed some changes and be upfront with them. When it goes to kind of looking for signs or symptoms of it, they're really not too different from what you might be looking for if you suspect student use as well. If alcohol or other drug use ends up being a problem, well, there is help available that can help people in those situations. If someone demonstrates like signs or symptoms that suggest problematic alcohol use, be aware of other possible explanations and avoid jumping to conclusions first mm-hmm. off. And that's where just engaging them right off the bat and having that discussion with them is, is really important. That's helpful and such a good message that everyone can access help and that what you said earlier about supporting that help-seeking behavior and normalizing that help-seeking behavior so that when someone does need support that they can access that. We usually ask people at the end to share something that you could start doing tomorrow. So whether it's specific to what we've talked about today or just in general, what is one thing that a teacher could do tomorrow to make a change with respect to either their individual well-being or that of the broader school community that they belong to that you would want to leave people with? I would say intention and small steps because it's easy to get bogged down in the industry of well-being right now. It's almost like the snake oil salesman of the future. Um, I don't know if you all are on Instagram or whatever, but there's constantly you're being bombarded with all these different drinks and workout things, whatever. It's everywhere. So being teachers, you know a good source from a bad source. Use that same skill in these instances and finding one small thing to do and just doing it consistently an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So take five minutes to give you and your students a chance to participate in proactive wellness piece, like the mindfulness moment that I mentioned earlier. Um, Look into other self-regulation techniques and take five minutes to try a new one at the start of class each week. Again, there's tons of evidence-based resources out there that can give you ideas. Something like, I don't know, I think everyone's heard of box breathing, you know, breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four. Or I like the one where, I don't know if you guys have heard of this one, naming four things that you can see, hear, and feel. Yeah, that grounding exercise is really helpful. That really helps you guys stay present and in the moment. Our earth, air, fire, and water is a neat one. I do this when I've gone to interviews. I do this one before I go in because I'm so nervous. But So earth is the grounding piece, wiggle your toes, that kind of a thing. Um, Put your feet flat on the ground. Air is about breath, so taking those big slow breaths. Fire is about becoming aware of your thoughts, 
and you know what that's doing to your body and then water is actually about saliva because when you're anxious or stressed out your mouth often dries out that's part of the stress emergency response or the, the sympathetic nervous system and that helps shut off the digestive system you know when you're in trouble kind of a thing so if you start making saliva or just take those those sips of water you switch the digestive system back on so that parasympathetic response and that encourages relaxation so again these are skills that both you and your students can use for the rest of your lives it's not a big time investment it's something simple to do that you can integrate into your day and again it's about students learning everyday skills to support their overall well-being and then the teachers get to co-regulate along with them so it's a win-win yeah those are all great ideas. Greg, what would you add to that? Well, I'll start by encouraging teachers yeah, first and foremost, look after yourselves. Teaching can be hard work and we're only as good as uh, what we invest in ourselves. And, you know, working on those uh, those wonderful relationships that teachers do form with their students and just being real with them. And that's what I think wholeheartedly, that's what students respect and that's what they'll respond uh, best to. Well, I really appreciate your advice and the experiences and stories that you shared and the ideas that you've given us to tackle the topic of alcohol in the school setting and how to approach conversations with our students with the right information. So again, really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise today and all the resources that you've shared as well. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It was fun. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Pod Class, a podcast from Everactive Schools that inspires educators with ideas for a happy, healthy classroom. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, The Pod Class is dismissed. <laughs>